Women who had been healed of evil spirits. Women who had been healed of sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene, of whom seven demons had gone out. Uh, her, her, her case seems to be something that was, like, notable. People knew her by this particular situation. Uh, we see that when Jesus had people who were part of his company, that it's not people that anybody would have ever selected. It's not the people, certainly, in fact, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, especially the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, the Sadducees, they had a lot of things they did not understand about Jesus' ministry. One of those things was the people he associated with. They could not understand how a supposed king, someone who was supposed to be or claiming to be the Messiah, that's the, the coming king of Israel, how he could possibly travel with such a group of losers. In fact, it's some of the, sometimes they would say things like, what is he doing eating and hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Another time, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. I think that's important to note. Jesus did not only go to the tax collectors and sinners. He was equal opportunity. He was at a Pharisee's house, and a woman comes in that was kind of known, she was known as, and I quote, a great sinner. When you study out what would cause a woman to be called a great sinner in that era of time, it is most likely she was some sort of a prostitute. She comes in and she anoints Jesus, wipes his feet with her hair, and the Pharisee says, in essence, if he thinks to himself, actually, if Jesus had any idea who that woman was, he wouldn't let her anywhere near him. This was the mindset of the Jewish people and their leaders. And so it confused them when Jesus is traveling with such a group of really needy people. This morning, I want to talk to you about three observations from our text, three observations about Jesus' interactions with the needy. And I, I hope that the Holy Spirit will help me to communicate something to you that God has deeply used to impact my heart. Three observations about Jesus' relationships with the needy. Number one, he ministered to the needy. Jesus ministered to those who were needy on a whole nother level that the Jewish people and their leaders had never done and simply, quite frankly, did not understand. So I'm going to talk about Jesus's work with the needy, but I first want you to understand what the common way was that the Jewish people dealt with the needy. It's very similar to how we do American missions as a whole. 
The Jewish people, one of the greatest examples of kind of what helping the needy looked like in the Jewish culture, we find in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, there is a man who is, the Bible says, lame. That means his legs did not work. And what we're told is that he would be carried to the gate at the temple, so at the gate into the entrance of the house of worship, one of the places the Jews would worship. They would bring this guy there, some friends of his, and they would sit him there and leave him there. It'd be very similar to bringing somebody who was crippled and just sitting them right there at the entrance so that you have to go past them coming into the church and you have to leave past them when you walk away. And the idea was is that as this man would sit there and all of these good, God-fearing Jewish people were on their way to church or leaving church, that as they were walking past the crippled man, he was there with his bag, they'd pull a little change out, throw it in his thing, and then walk on to church or walk on home and pat themselves on the back for being so good to provide help to this man in need. Jesus didn't just throw money at people and walk away. He literally ministered to them. What's mind-blowing to me is that what Jesus did most, he didn't feed them. I think we should feed them. The Bible teaches that we should. He didn't give them water. He didn't give them clothing. He met their deepest needs and redeemed them and healed them of their infirmities and transformed their soul in the process. And then he would invite them to follow him. He would meet their needs. He ministered to the needy. He loved the needy. Jesus started his ministry with the basic declaration. In Luke 4.18 is really when Jesus begins his ministry, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he quotes from the scroll of Isaiah. And and, and here... Here's what he says in a paraphrase. He says, God has sent me to care for the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to give sight to the blind, recovering of sight to the blind, but to preach good news to the poor. He says, that's what I'm sent here to do. That is my mission is those who are needy. Note that Jesus, in his ministering to the needy, He pursued the needy. In other words, when Jesus came to this earth, he did not set up some grand building adorned with gold and pearls and silver and jewels and say, here I am, you know where I'm at. If you need help, I'll be here. The Bible tells us that Jesus went from village to village. He traveled from place to place. He would go to where people were, and he pursued those who had need. There's a great lesson here for us, brothers and sisters. I'm telling you, if we are truly going to care for those in need, like the church, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to do it Jesus' way, and we're going to have to realize we, you cannot just throw money at a problem. Money doesn't. Money rarely fixes the problem in the first place. 
Jesus went to the needy. He pursued the needy. I thought about the reality. And anybody who's ever been truly saved, God has saved you and he's given you a new nature. Here's what you, you know. You can testify to this. God pursued you. Like you weren't looking for him. You didn't wake up one day and think, you know what? I'm going to track down God and I'm going to plead my case to God. And I'm going to share with God all the reasons that he should let me in. You weren't even thinking about God. God brought somebody into your life or God put some song in your life or you picked up your Bible and started reading or whatever it might be. God pursued you. And I'm telling you, God's still pursuing people today. We are watching God save the lost. Jesus ministered to the needy. Number two, he identified himself with the needy. Now, this is the thing that the Jewish folks just could not understand. It is one thing to go and help somebody in need. It's an entirely different thing to identify with them. This is where the Jews and people like you and I really got it wrong. They, they never could have pictured Jesus traveling with the people that he traveled with. But it's not really because the Bible didn't say so. The Word of God told us that Jesus would come to care for the poor. That that was one of the things he would do. People could understand him caring for the poor, but it's a whole other thing. Instead of just walking and caring and you know, providing a meal or something like that, what they could not anticipate was he was going to go so far beyond that, he was going to identify with them. They would be his people. When you saw that group of people walking through town, here's what you knew. Jesus is here. He literally identified himself with them. Think of it. The Son of God. I want to ask the question, who would you have selected? You're responsible for selecting the group of people who will travel with him during these three most crucial years of human history. You get the job. You are tasked with selecting who that group of people are going to be. How many of us pick a large group of people who have been demon-possessed, who are poor and have very little to offer, who, if it weren't for Jesus, never would have even been healed at all, and that's the group of people that are with him. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters. His ways are way, 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 way higher than our ways. He is not like you and I. He is pure in all of his ways. He is holy in all of his ways. The ways of man are not the ways of God. Why did he select this group of companions? Can we, can we just take a moment to take a little detour? I mean, it's somewhat relevant, but can we take a moment to take a detour and acknowledge that Jesus couldn't have given two cents less about the applause of men? He wasn't looking for a bunch of noble followers that made the community think, now that guy's got influence. He actually chose the exact opposite. Let me tell you what that means. Jesus would not have been a celebrity pastor. I guarantee it. 
Now, I'm not saying that he wouldn't pastor a large church. There's different things between pastoring a large. There's pastors out there that pastor thousands of people that don't play the celebrity pastor game. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus understood the worthlessness of men's applause. And he wasn't after it. He didn't want anything to do with it. He looks for the most real, the deepest, and most meaningful relationships that can exist. That's why Jesus had these people following him. It was ultimately about relationship. There's no ulterior motive. You know, relationships that we have when there's no ulterior motive, they're, they're, they're deeper. Jesus wasn't looking for a bunch of people that were somehow hoping to elevate their name, being part of his crew. Jesus picked a bunch of people that felt like, I don't even deserve to be here. What am I doing as part of this team? That's who he picked. It's interesting. He picked people that had such a terrible, uh, you know, or, or, or such a minimal impact that in the, in the kingdom that even after they were on Jesus' team, people's opinions about him didn't change. <laughs> you know, people weren't like, oh, we, we were wrong about Mary Magdalene. No, they're just like, what's Mary doing with Jesus? Those are the type of people that he chose as part of his team. Now, there is some lessons here. I told you this is about relationship, and this is where the, this sermon, you need the help of the Holy Spirit, and I pray the Holy Spirit will help me to communicate these things. Everything else I just said is really not all that difficult to understand. These deep relationships are only possible in the capacity of need. Why did Jesus select such a needy group of people to be his followers? Here's the answer. Deep, meaningful relationships only exist in the capacity of need. Let that sink in. Your best friends are people that you need. You need them. I'm not saying you can't survive without them. I'm not saying that if they were to, to, to die, that you would die, but there would be a huge void in your life if they were gone because they literally are needed by you. There's not a relationship on the earth that better paints this than the husband and the wife. And even in God's design at the beginning, he said, it's not good that man should be alone. He, I'll make a helper for him. Why? Because man needed a helper. And you'll find there are people in your life you need. You need them to encourage you when you're discouraged. You need them to be strong for you when you're weak. You need them to have the integrity to just look you in the eyes and say, no, you're wrong about this, and hold you accountable for making the changes in your life you need to make. There are people in your life, and it's always a very, very small group of people that we're like that with. But you need them, and they need you. And what you'll find about that group of friends, that's who you're most intimate with. So no wonder Jesus selects this needy group of people that teaches us something about the goal of God. May the Holy Spirit help us to see it. 
it's not all just about him finding people who have needs. It's more about relationship. That's what God is after. Relationship. And that relationship is formed on the basis of true need. That's what Jesus was after. And you will find that those who see their need for the Savior are always those who love him most. Remember when Jesus asked the question? Uh, in fact, I've already referenced that story about the Pharisee that was like, if you knew anything about this woman, you wouldn't let her be here. And Jesus gives the guy a little story. He says, suppose that, that one man uh, gets forgiven just a little tiny bit of debt, and, and, and then another man gets forgiven lots of debt. Which one will be more thankful? Which one will love more? And the Pharisee said, well, I suppose the one who was given, forgiven the most debt. That makes sense. And Jesus said, yeah, you're right. He who has forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. It's about love. It's not about need. And here's the third point. He lived on the provisions of the needy. And this is the point that broke me. Look again at Luke 8, verses 2 and 3. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This truth has impacted me so deeply that I will not be able to get it into words. I tried it the first service, and I knew it. I couldn't do it. I wasn't able to do it. I think about the Romans 8 passage, which talks about when we pray that the Holy Spirit sometimes prays through us with groanings like you can't even put it into words. That's how I feel about what I'm trying to communicate in this third point. He fed others miraculously. This is the Son of God who walked upon the water who took a few loaves and fishes and fed more than 10,000 people. He could have spoke and created food if he wanted. This is the same God that fed Israel with manna in the wilderness, millions of people for 40 years. Yet he chooses to live off of the means, the provision of the poor. Why didn't he just have like half of his group be a bunch of rich folks where it'd be no problem at all for them to provide all the food? Why does he choose to live off of the provisions, the gifts of the poor? I will say it this way. He chose to live 
upon the love of his people. He gave all things to men, including his own life. He laid down his own life for us. But he did not just give to men and women. He did not just give to us. He received all things from them. And this is real love, which is only perfect when it's giving and receiving. Who could invent such an idea as this? this is, there's so many thousands of things that validate how unique the Bible is and why you can trust it. But who would have ever invented the Son of God coming to earth and being provided for by the poor? I mean, who comes up with that narrative for their hero? This was written for our learning, brothers and sisters. He lived in such a way so that it would be recorded. And it melts our hearts to see him living upon the love of his ransomed people. It is a wonder to us. It's not, it's, it's not uh, difficult to understand why they would give to him. After all that he had done, of course they would want to give what they could. That's not the part that's hard for me to understand. The part that's hard for me to understand is these were poor people and he was willing to go ahead and take what they had gave so that they could live off of it. And there are two lessons here that I've been most moved by. First, listen to me carefully. If I want to have deep fellowship with God, I must be needy. I'm going to circle back to that and say more about that later. I'll share with you something that's happened in my life recently. But if I want to have deep fellowship with God, I have to be needy. This is one of the reasons that Jesus, he's teaching the same theme so many different places, but Jesus says it's more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. His disciples are like, well, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man it's not possible, but with God all things are possible. He says it's not impossible, but you know what someone with great wealth has? All they need. Or at least so the enemy would tell them. Or at least so the world would say. And it is when we don't see ourselves as needy that we begin to cut ourselves off from a true, deep, intimate relationship with God. If I feel like I've got everything I need and I don't really need God for anything, trust me, that relationship with God is not going to be very strong. And so if I want to maintain a solid, intimate, and deep relationship with God, I must be needy. I must recognize my great need for Him. And then after that, even though I'm the one in need, 
I must be willing to take what little I have, what seems so insignificant, and be willing to give it to God. It's not a matter of need for God. Jesus did not live off the provisions of these needy people because he needed it to live. It is about love. It is about relationship. It is a matter of his want. He wants my gift. He wants the best that I have to give. He wants my meager provision. And second, there is a deep lesson here in human relationships. We must learn to give our best, even to those who we think don't need it. You might think, you know, if you want to have a relationship with anybody that's ever meaningful, you're going to have to be willing to give your best, even if you think, well, they don't really need that. They don't, they don't, they don't need my advice. They don't need my love. They don't need my support. They don't need my gift. You've got to be willing to give your best even to people that you think don't need it. And vice versa, we must learn to receive from those who have less than we do. When I was seeing this whole thing, something came to life in my heart. And this might be one of the reasons that this particular passage God used to just tear me up that maybe some of you can't relate to. I've probably been in over 200 homes of people living in some of the worst conditions on the planet over the course of the last last 15 years with our missions in Haiti. Um, Some of the places I were in the Philippines. Um, Homes, if you want to call them that, in Juarez, Mexico. Um, And homes in Honduras. I've probably been in maybe 200. Every mission team that I've been on, and we tell you the same thing. You ever come with us, you're going to hear the same thing. But at one point, I was introduced to missions. I had my first mission trip, and I was just along for the ride, and I'm taking all the instructions and hearing what to do. And this is one of the pieces of advice that we got. When you get, get somewhere, um, they're, they're probably going to try to give you food. You don't need to eat it. You might get sick. It's probably not clean. And so we normally ate before we went. We do the same thing traditionally with our group. And you can say, honestly, we just got done eating. I'm not real hungry, but I'd be willing to take it with me. And then we take it with. You could feed it to a translator, give it to a translator. I mean, you wouldn't feed them personally. Just hand it to the translator. (laughs) They can feed themselves. But the point is, is that I was trained, and we, we, we train people to travel with us. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable. We don't feel pressured to take something, eat something, drink something that you don't know what it is. I have always just felt Joplin Emerson felt a check in my spirit about that. And I never felt wrong about anybody else feeling that. I mean, like, that makes sense. You're going to hear me say the same things, but I'm just telling you, when I would show up, I had this weird check in my spirit, and, and we joke around it a lot. But what is said about me is that I'll eat anything. And I have. I've ate fish that made me as sick as I've ever been. And I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying I did. I couldn't understand why. 
couldn't understand why I always felt like I just needed to say yes until the Holy Spirit opened my heart to this. And I realized it was never about the food. It was always about the relationship. It was like, what else could they possibly do to show their appreciation for us? And in my American wealth mindset where I've got a nice home and I've got everything that I need, I've had people that live off $80 a month trying to raise a family of four or five people. They're as poverty-stricken as it comes. And then when I go, they want to give me some $20 blanket or something that they purchase for me. And my heart is like, what I want to say is, look, no, you keep it. I have 50 of these at home. You clothe your kids with it. You put your children under this blanket. And what I've come to see is never about the blanket. It's about the fact that these people have come to a place they really see their relationship with me as meaningful. And they want to somehow contribute to that relationship and not just be takers. And I'm telling you, this freed me up to take anything that anybody ever wants to give me again without feeling bad about it at all, but actually having a completely different perspective about it, taking it with a sense of gratitude and gratefulness because this relationship has meaning and they have something to offer as well. It is not just us giving, 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 and them taking, 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 but all of a sudden has become more than we've shown up for some humanitarian giving away and humanitarian aid, and we're building relationships that are meaningful to people. Now think about this. We get all of that from studying Jesus' relationship with his people. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's an interesting passage. You know, none of the Gospels record Jesus saying that anywhere. You can't find that in any of the Gospels. But when you go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, Paul is quoting Jesus, and he says, remember when Jesus said. So at some point, Jesus said it. It just wasn't recorded in the Gospels. It's recorded in Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I realized for any relationship to ever be meaningful, you must be willing to receive you want, you want to allow the other person to be blessed in this relationship? You have got to let them put something into it too. You can't just always be the one that's giving and giving and giving. So it is with God. It has nothing to do with the size of the gift. In fact, Jesus, Jesus says these things that are just perplexing. It's like, I don't understand Jesus. Jesus is with his disciples, and they're at a, um, a service of some sort at the church, and uh, they're taking offerings, and there seemed to be people really making a show out of their offering. I mean, they wanted everybody to know, you know, pulling out the big bucks, fanning themselves down. It's hot in here, isn't it? Dumping it in for everybody to see. And then there was this really poor widow who had what 
some believe is considered to like a nickel or a dime in today's era of time. And it was all that she had. And she just put it in. Jesus had his disciples watching this whole thing with him. And he said to his disciples, did you see, see what happened there? All of these others giving out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. Here's what he said. She gave more than the rest of them. Now, that's an odd thing to say. It's just an odd, it's like what, it's hard to wrap our minds around that. But here's what he said from, my, from his perspective, from the perspective of our Creator, from the perspective of heaven. You see, it has nothing to do with his need. Guys, God created the whole world. The very gold people use to cover stuff. God created it. It's just part of his random creation. It's just there in the earth, along with everything else. It was ultimately about their willingness to be sacrificial. Their willingness to give something that actually demonstrated their love for God. And I'm going to ask you a hard question, and I, want, I just want you to answer it in your own heart quietly. But this is a hard question. When is the last time you actually gave something that demonstrated to God you loved Him? When is the last time that you gave up enough of your time and your life to sow it into somebody else's to demonstrate, God, I want to advance your kingdom and I love you? This life is not mine, it's yours. When's the last time you've given up your time in such a way that it demonstrates your love for God? When's the last time that you've used your talents and your gifts in such a way that you could say, I, am, I, I know when God saw that, He knew that I loved Him. When's the last time you gave of what God has given to you in such a way that you know and God knows when you did that thing, you demonstrated your love for Him. Because that's the type of love that God wants from you and I. The amazing thing is it looks different for every one of us. What it looked like for the woman with the widow's might and what it looked like for the rest of everybody in that room were two very, 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 very different things. But only one person that day was willing to make the sacrifice to show the giving that is marked by real love. I want to conclude with some practical thoughts and share with you something that's happened in my life recently. When we forget how needy we really are, we cut off our communion, our deep fellowship with the Savior. It's a dangerous thing when we forget how needy we really are. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't care who you are. I don't care how secure you think your life is. I don't care what your need level looks like compared to the people of earth. We are all truly needy when we come to see where we are with the Lord. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm, this is one of the most embarrassing things that I've had to say in years. I'm going to say it. Somehow I allowed my heart to get to a place in the last three months that it has never been before since 
15, 16 years of starting this church. And God knows my heart. I'm telling you what I just said is true. Somehow I forgot how needy I really was. I found myself trying to do things in my own strength. I found myself thinking that just because I showed up that somehow God was going to do something. I have people whose lives depend upon me. I've worked with people whose whose lives are on the brink of, of changing radically if God doesn't do something. Counseled with folks for months. And my honest opinion is, is that during that period of time, on any given group of people or individual, I probably spent less than three minutes in prayer. Joplin thought I was just going to show up and somehow open in this stupid mouth of mine that somehow I could help somebody. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is God's honest truth. I have not ever done that. Fifteen years, I have not allowed myself to get to that place. And I don't know how it happened, but it did. People who need healing, depending depending upon me. And I show up like some arrogant, prideful fool who thinks that just being there is somehow going to change something. And I quit depending upon God and I quit praying like I should. And I had I had an awakening. Things that typically I was confident would have been accomplished were not accomplished in many scenarios. And I'm telling you, God straight woke me up. Said, how well are you doing without me, boy? You got it all figured, don't you? Great Joplin Emerson's going to show up and everything's going to be okay. And I'm telling you, I broke. I have not been so ashamed. I didn't want to talk to anybody for two days. I could hardly look my wife in the eyes. I was so ashamed of myself. So ashamed. And I was reminded just how quickly that we are absolutely nothing without God. That's what Jesus said. He said, you can do nothing without me. That's how much you can do. I'm thankful for the grace of God. I'm not ignorant. I've watched God move in the last three months. I've watched, God hasn't rained down judgment on this place and, and, and God hasn't made every word that's come out of this pulpit fall on deaf ears just because your pastor was in a season when I thought, and I'm telling you, I promise you this, I, I didn't even know what was going on. I really didn't. But it was. And I'm thankful for the grace of God. I'm telling you, God's been good through the last three months. I mean, many of you have been here during this time. You've watched God move. God hasn't turned the lights out yet. But I'm telling you, when He brings an awakening... And he makes you aware of something. You better repent of it. Because the lights will go out shortly thereafter if you do not.
And I literally fell before God and I just told God, I'm so sorry. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and reminded me the sin looks a little different in my life than it does for everybody else. I'm capable of every sin that every one of you are capable of. But it looks different for me. I was reminded of Samuel who said to the people of Israel, God forbid that I sin against God and not pray for you. He was in a different position. Responsible for the souls of multitudes of people. And it's not just, the, you, you hear that, the sin of not praying for somebody, and you're like, oh, you're just being a little over-spiritual. No. It's not so much the sin of not praying for people, it's the sin of being so stinking prideful and arrogant that anybody would ever think they could handle the church that Jesus shed his blood for and not need God's help doing it. That's the greater sin. And I would argue it's a far greater sin than some of the other things that we could name. There's a lesson here for all of us that are spiritual leaders. There's a danger at times in falling in and not realizing just how needy we really are. And when you get there, I promise you this, it'll cut off your, your communion with God. I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation over it. I'm not saying God will turn his back on you. I'm just telling you this. The fellowship and the communion are not nearly as deep when you want to get out on your own and think that somehow you can do God's work in your own strength. And I was there, and I am deeply sorry. And I'm making steps in my life to make changes. The Bible says something come by prayer and fasting. I was doing no fasting at all, and very little prayer. And then looking around and wondering, like, God, why ain't everything the same? You know, there's a balance. I spent two days... Two days in such deep shame. And uh, it's just the truth. I, I, I just didn't want to preach again for a while. Just felt like, just felt like somebody else that wasn't so prideful and arrogant really needed to be up here preaching. That's how I felt. Just felt like, uh, you ever feel like, you know, you time out? <laughs> You just need to discipline yourself a little bit. That's how I felt. I realized, I realized two things. I realized how needy I was, and I realized how foolish I was, and not even being able to realize how needy I was. And all of a sudden, I'm just telling you, my confidence has gone for a little bit. And this brings us back around to what broke me in this passage. We err when we think, when we realize we are so needy, we feel like I got nothing to offer, and so we don't want to give. We feel like I got nothing to offer, God. I don't, I don't want to give. You need somebody else that's got more to offer. You need somebody else that's closer to you than me. You need somebody else that has what I don't. You, have some, you need somebody else that's doing what I'm not. And here's the lesson. God says, no, I just want what little you have. Now that you realize how little it is, that's what I want. <laughs> that's what I want. That's all I wanted all along. Are you willing to give me what little you have and realize how little it is and hope that I'll take it and I'll actually do something with it? And above it all, that this is the type of thing 
that moves the heart of God, that God says, this is what I chose to live upon when I was here, when I sent my son. As our worship team gets in place, I want to give you a couple questions this morning. What thing do you have to offer that you thought to yourself, well, God don't want that? What do you have in your life you think, well, it's just too little, it's too insignificant. God doesn't want that. My meager offering of my talents won't change anymore. My meager donation is too small to make a dent. God don't want it. He needs someone greater than I. Can I tell you to stop it? God's heart is most moved when the needy that he has redeemed return their love for him by just giving back what they can give. What is your love gift that you've been holding on to that you need to release and give it to God? 